Wow, so glad to see so many of you out tonight, those who have come out, whether you're a part of the College View Church or you're visiting from the community. We're excited that you're here. It says something good about you. It says that you're interested in our country, the welfare of it, and also that you're interested in what the Bible has to say that would help us in our country be a better nation, a more God-fearing nation, more pleasing to the Lord, and would direct us individually in the way we ought to go as far as voting and other concerns in our day-to-day lives. I should preface my remarks this evening by saying this. In light of the events of the last 24 hours, um, I think I'm pretty much compelled to say this. Not all of my material tonight is original, okay? I have seriously plagiarized, um, seriously plagiarized from another source Uh, much of what I'm going to say tonight, so I need to make that crystal clear before I get started. Uh, A lot of what I have to say is going to come right out of this book. (laughs) So (laughs) if you want to know what the source of this material is, you might uh, open your Bible with with me tonight if you brought it with you. And we'll be looking at a lot of Bible verses as we consider some important matters tonight. In 2008, there was a movie that that came out, uh, starred Kevin Costner, It was called The Swing Vote. I never saw the movie, but I I do do remember the advertisements for it, and I've read a couple of reviews about it. Basically, the entire movie was about a presidential election that, through a series of improbable events, would be determined by the vote of one man. Uh, And you can only imagine how this one man then became (laughs) the focus of everybody's attention in America in this uh, fictional account in this movie. The candidates in the movie were willing to do and say anything uh, to win over that deciding swing vote. Now, as, as improbable as the plot of that movie sounds, it does have a certain similarity to some things that are going on in our country today and to our current national reality is obviously in the midst of a presidential campaign, and we are being told and will be told more and more frequently as the time approaches that there are swing voters in swing states, and the way that they go will determine the outcome of this election. That we've, I've been told that, you know, every, every time we've had a national election from the time that I can, uh, you know, remember being part of politics, each candidate is going to do everything they can do in their, within their power to sway the swing votes in his or her direction, believing that those key voters in states in the North, the South, and the West are going to determine who's going to be the president and will result in their victory. I'm here to tell you tonight, as we said a little bit last night, that in reality, there is only one vote that matters. And his choice will determine who leads this country. The Bible teaches that, and I believe it to be true. In Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says, Exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. Now that might sound like blasphemy to a lot of people in the South. (laughs) But exaltation doesn't come from any of those places. Not from the East, not from the North, not from the South. 
It doesn't come from those places. It says that God is the judge. He puts down and He exalts another. It is in the hands of God, ultimately. God decides who rules. And tonight we want to consider the sovereignty of God. We talked a little bit about this at the beginning last night. I'm going to go a little bit deeper into it tonight. And uh, as we go through our talk and this speech, uh, hopefully we'll be able to draw some conclusions from what we're saying about the sovereignty of God that will put our minds and hearts at rest. Uh, concerning a lot of the trouble that is going on in the world in which we live, especially the political and social trouble that we're experiencing. Let's begin with this thought. We as Christians are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're living on earth. We must realize that that heavenly citizenship uh, precedes any earthly affiliation, is more important than any earthly affiliation. And so it's heaven that we're first and foremost concerned with. And it is our God who is in heaven who is reigning over the things that are happening on earth. God reigns over the nations. He reigns in heaven and on earth. You might remember that when the spies went to spy out Jericho, they met an individual named Rahab, who surprisingly, though she was not an Israelite, had a lot of faith in the God of Israel. And she told the spies in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 11 that the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. God is God. He reigns in heaven. He reigns on earth. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 31, the text says, Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad and let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. So we believe tonight the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God. And I'm going to, again, talk about that from a scriptural standpoint and explain further what we mean, what the Bible means when it talks about God reigning and His sovereignty. And in the end, God's counsel will hold sway in the affairs of men. Again, notice a couple of passages with me. Look at Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. There the psalmist says that the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. So men may plan and they may plot and they may have their political schemes and you know they may have plot, plot, plot coups to overthrow countries. That's actually kind of hard to say. <laughs> but you know what's going to happen is, is what God determines will ha- happen. His counsel will truly stand. Proverbs 21 and verse 30 simply says that there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. You, you can plot and you can plan, but if it's not what the Lord wants done, it's not going to happen. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. Psalm 47 and verse 8 says. So God is surely sovereign. And his counsel will hold sway in the affairs of men, no matter what men may plan. Rulers obtain authority and their positions of authority by God's permission, with his lead, and by his appointment. These are points that we talked about last night, but let me talk about them again just briefly. 
in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, the text says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. Those are the words of Daniel. God does that. In Daniel chapter 5 and verse 21, we learn that God appoints whomever He chooses. Nebuchadnezzar was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast. His dwellings, dwelling was with the wild donkeys, the text says. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdoms of men and appoints whomever he chooses, whomever God chooses. And then we looked also last night at Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So anyone who is in any position of authority in government, while they have their voters to thank perhaps in our nation for electing them and putting them into that office, needs to realize that they're there in that position by the grace of God. And it's his appointment that has allowed them to occupy that place. And we as citizens need to understand that as well. Paul's point, as we talked at length about last night in Romans 13, is that because governing officials are appointed by God, they deserve the highest respect and honor. We need to pay our taxes to support them. We need to give our customs to honor them. And that's all truth that flows from this reality that they're placed in those positions by the God of heaven. The Lord accomplishes his counsel among men by the leaders that he allows to rule. The process by which God chooses those leaders and the reasons that he might raise one up and put one down while some of those things were revealed in Old Testament situations, in modern day, God is not revealing His reasons to us. He's not telling us how He does everything that He does. The secret things, as the Old Testament says in the book of Deuteronomy, surely belong to God. And if God doesn't want to tell us how He's doing something or why He's doing something, certainly He doesn't have to. But the Lord can select a national leader who will bring peace, prosperity, and encourage righteousness, or he can select one who will bring national disaster. In fact, one who will bring a nation all the way down to destruction, if that's what he chooses. And again, in modern day, God doesn't have a prophet that's revealing the whys and wherefores of that to us in modern national or international politics. But we can have an understanding, at least a general understanding of the mind of God in this matter by looking at some things that we can read in the Old Testament when he was revealing how and why he was doing this. And a lot of it, a lot of, you know, who is God going to choose to raise up? And what purpose is he going to have for this person? Is it going to be a good person who's going to bring a nation to prosperity and righteousness or is it going to be someone who's going to bring a nation to its knees 
How does God make those choices? And what the Old Testament will reveal to us is that a lot of it depends on whether or not there are righteous people in the nation who are trying to fear God and obey Him and honor Him in their lives. That apparently God makes those kinds of decisions based as much on that as anything else. You might remember Jonah going to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a wicked nation. A nation that did not regard the God of heaven. And Jonah, you know, was sort of an unwilling victim. He, he didn't want to go. Jonah was an Israelite patriot. And Assyria was their, you know, tooth and toenail enemy. And Jonah, Jonah didn't want to go. Jo, Jonah wanted to be anywhere else but going to Nineveh to preach them a message of repentance and salvation. And uh, after spending, uh, you know, three days in the belly of a fish, he, he had a change of heart, let's say. And he went to Nineveh. And he preached this message of repentance. And basically what Jonah said to the people of Nineveh was, if you don't repent, God's going to destroy you. And you know the story, and it didn't please Jonah what happened, but the people of Nineveh sure enough repented. And God spared them. Jonah didn't like it. He wanted God to destroy them. But God spared them because as a nation they repented. From the king all the way down. Now there's a lesson in that for us. Why does God raise up nations? Why does God bring down nations? Why does He raise up politicians to do this or that? Well, we see in that story and in many other Old Testament stories, we see that the willingness of a nation collectively or individually to fear God, to turn from evil, to try to do righteousness day by day, that that made all the difference in the mind of God. And that would determine what He would do relative to the welfare of that nation. Jeremiah, as most all of you probably know, is known in the Old Testament as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah did a lot of crying, but he had a lot of reason to cry. Because Jeremiah was the prophet that God selected to go and tell Judah, and especially the kings of Judah, that you are going to be taken down by Babylon. The Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar is going to lay you waste, take your nobles captive, and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, the holy temple is going to be laid waste, and all of it's going to happen because of the evil that has gone on in the nation of Judah. So Jeremiah again, was, I think, a true patriot. He didn't want to see that happen to his nation. But God said it was going to, and Jeremiah was responsible for delivering the message, and what a wonderful and faithful job he did in giving that very unpopular message to the people of his day. Jeremiah prophesied for decades to people who didn't believe him, didn't want to believe him, didn't want to hear his message, persecuted him because of the message that he had, and yet it was a message from God, and it came true in great detail as both biblical and non-biblical history bear out. But I want you to go to Jeremiah chapter 18 and listen to one of several explanations that the Lord gives concerning how He deals with nations and why He deals with nations the way that He does. Listen carefully to these words. The Lord explains... The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck it up 
to pull it down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would do to benefit it. That's pretty plain, isn't it? As the Proverbs say, righteousness exalts a nation. It exalts a nation in the eyes of God. And so as we talked about last night, we should be concerned with encouraging righteousness in our nation. We do that by evangelizing. We do that by praying. We do that by using our vote to, 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 to encourage righteous causes and to discourage unrighteousness in our land. The importance of it is that God is looking and God has the swing vote. That's the importance. That's the great importance of what we do. It's not, it's, not real, it's not your vote. It's not so much even your prayer, although that's certainly powerful. It's not, as we talked about last night, probably the most powerful thing you can do individually is to evangelize, to share the gospel with your neighbors all across this land. But all of that comes together, coupled with you living a righteous life and fearing the God of heaven. All of that comes together to influence the only vote that really counts. And that is the vote of the God of heaven. Amazingly, although this seems straightforward and simple, I'm certain that none of us, individually or all of us collectively, are capable of comprehending what's in the mind of God when he makes all of these decisions and executes his counsel according to his will in the earth. And, and we just need to, to recognize, let's let God be God and let's, let's admit that we're just human beings. Let's trust him, not only with the outcome of our eternity individually, not only with the outcome of the eternity of the church, but let's trust him with the future of our nation. Here's what I believe, friends and neighbors. I believe that God knows what He's doing, even when we don't understand it. And I believe that we can trust Him to do what's right and to do what's best with all that He has in His mind. Again, that's far beyond what we can possibly comprehend. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. God can use the most unlikely of rulers to accomplish his purposes. And this is something that we, we need to come face to face with. I, I think a lot of people, a lot of people who call themselves Christians don't understand this. God can use anyone to do what he wants done. He's sort of amazing that way. He's proven it over and over and over again in human history. A recent writer on Facebook was trying to encourage Christians to serve in whatever capacities they can as elected officials. 
to seek office and to be elected. And his rationale was like this, and let me quote him. He said, Government cannot be a minister of God for good if good men refuse to serve. Now, and that sounds right on the surface, doesn't it? When you first read that, you say, you know what, that, he's got a point there. Now I'm going to surprise you because I want to tell you this. It's patently false. God can use anybody he wants to accomplish good or evil according to his design or purpose. How about that? That's why he's the sovereign God. That's why he's in control. And you say, well, what are you talking about, Steve? Well, what I'm talking about is that when Paul wrote Romans 13, as we mentioned last night, when he told those Christians living in Rome to be subject to the powers that be, to submit themselves to the governing authorities that they were under, and he was talking about one of the most evil emperors who ever reigned anywhere on this planet, Caesar Nero, and he's saying, in essence, you submit yourselves to this man, and he is your minister, specifically, he says, he is your minister for good. That's what he told them. How can Nero be the minister to Christians for good? I don't pretend to understand all of that. As I said last night, he was a persecutor of Christians. But on the other hand, there was widespread peace in the Roman Empire and freedom to move about and evangelize the world as a result of the Roman Empire. And the fact that God caused Christianity, if you will, to be born in the Roman Empire, and because it was born in due time in the Roman Empire, it was able to spread so quickly all over the then civilized world. God knew what he was doing, didn't he? When you go back to the Old Testament, we consider, I was talking about a minute ago, Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah talks about how God was bringing Nebuchadnezzar, you know, to destroy Judah, to waylace Jerusalem. The Bible story is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was just, was just a pawn of God. God used him to accomplish his purposes. Exactly what he wanted to do, to do with Judah, that's what he accomplished through Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was not a, a great and righteous man. He was an idolater. And although in the book of Daniel he came to understand about the God of heaven, overall, not a great person. And God will later say that he would punish Babylon with other nations. But my point is, here's a man, he would be, if you were, okay, if we were running elections in 606 B.C., you know, who's going to rule the world in 606 B.C.? And everybody had a vote. And we were having political conventions, you know, the, uh, the Babylonian Republicans and the Babylonian Democrats, and, and then you have the third party the, coming from Israel or something like that. Who would you vote for, right? Who would you vote for? 
And, and nobody in here, if you lived there then, would have said, you know, I'm casting my vote for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar all the way. Nobody would have said that. But that's who God chose to accomplish what He wanted done for the ultimate good of His people. But for 70 years, I can tell you, His people didn't think it was very good because they spent 70 years in captivity as a result of what Nebuchadnezzar did. But it was all for their purification and for the ultimate good of the nation. If you were an Israelite living in that day and time, I don't believe you would have seen that. Many, as I already said, most all of Judah rebelled against Jeremiah's prophecy concerning this. They didn't believe it. They didn't want to believe it. You couldn't make them believe it until they finally saw it. All right, let's put all of that in our hats. And I want to go on to another subject. We'll come back around to this in a little bit. I want to broach a question with you. And the question is, is America the Christian's nation? Is it God's nation? Much has been made in recent years of efforts of elitists and progressives and humanists in both politics and education to deny that the United States was founded as a Christian nation, quote-unquote. And let me just say, as with many controversies among men, uh, there's some truth on both sides of things, often. And I think that's the case with this particular controversy. And I'm going to share a few facts with you, not nearly all that could be shared, but just by the way of uh, encouraging you maybe to do your own research into some of this. But it is, it is true that our country was certainly not founded to be run by churches. Nor was there any expectation by our founders that it would be run by men who had precisely the same faith. There was not an expectation of that. However, it was certainly founded by men who believed themselves, by and large, to be Christians... And it was founded upon principles from their understanding of Christianity. And I might say that their understanding of Christianity was not perfect. But as far as they understood Christianity, that's what many of them were following. And that's something that a lot of American people don't want to believe. In fact, <clears throat> it's a reality that has been all but erased from public education in recent decades. We may have some educators here, I don't know, I'm in education somewhat myself. And in, in public schools, the, the retelling of history, the revisionist history that's being taught in American history classes in our country nowadays is uh, in some places frankly appalling uh, what's being taught and what's not being taught. But one of the things I've noticed in, in recent decades among educational elitists especially, uh, humanists and, and, and the kind of people who are trying to, to sort of run our country now, um, one of the things I've noticed is that there's a big emphasis on two of our founders in particular, 
Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. Both of those men deserve a lot of credit in the founding of our nation. But they've really become the darlings of the media and of educators of American history in recent decades. And I think there's an underlying reason for that. Both of those men were deists. At least as far as I can tell, neither one of them appears to have believed in Jesus Christ as the living Son of God. While both of them believed in God or in a God, I don't believe that they had an understanding of Jesus Christ as God in the flesh. And that's borne out. You can study that historically. But it's curious, isn't it, that those two individuals would often so often come to the forefront of our conversations now about American history. And I think that's on purpose by those who would want to sort of take Christianity out of the discussion of what our founders were trying to do. And so many people nowadays have this impression that most of our founding fathers perhaps were deists who just say, well, yeah, there's a God, but he's sort of like a divine clockmaker. You know, he makes the clock, he winds it up, he sits it on a table and he walks away and never has anything to do with it again. That's their view of God. And that's their view, I think, of what perhaps a lot of the founders believed. But a lot of the founders didn't believe that. In fact, the vast majority of them did not believe that. And so a lot of people are surprised to learn that 51 out of the 55 delegates to the Constitutional Convention were members of mainline Protestant denominations. For most of them, their expressed intention was to found a Christian nation. Let me give you just a few representative statements. John Adams, signer of the Declaration of Independence, one of two authors of the Bill of Rights, second president of the United States, he wrote, and I quote, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. It's a bold statement. John Hancock, another signer of the Declaration, called on the entire state to pray, and I quote, that universal happiness may be established in the world and that all may bow to the scepter of our Lord Jesus Christ and the whole earth be filled with his glory. Again, a strong statement of what he expected people in his state to do. Patrick Henry, never lost for words, revolutionary general, ratifier of the U.S. Constitution, wrote as follows. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have statements like that coming from many of our founders. Now, I'm just going to tell you right here that I'm not going with this where you think I'm going with this. <laughs> if you've been tuned in to televangelists, uh, you know, who have cited some of these same facts that I've cited. Uh, the point that they drive to is that, well, you know, America is God's specially chosen nation. And we are, in some unique way, more than any other nation on earth, a Christian nation. That this is, in fact, the Christian's nation. And that's simply not the case.
we should be warned. And again, I'd encourage you to do maybe personal research on this. That the intentions of many of these founders that I've quoted and many others I could quote were not really influenced by the Bible as much as they were by the teachings of John Calvin. And if you don't know the relationship of John Calvin to uh, American government, although John Calvin lived a lot earlier than the founding of America, I'd suggest you study that. Uh, many of these people that I've quoted were influenced by Calvin and the Huguenots, and their ideas don't come straight out of the Bible. They come straight out of Calvinist theology, which is not correct on many crucial points. Let me tell you a little bit about America and God's true nation. Many of the founders may have well intended for America to be this special Christian nation. And as I've already quoted, I think that's borne out. At the first gathering of the Continental Congress, the chaplain rose to begin the meeting with the reading of Scripture. He turned in his Bible to Psalm 33 and read verses 12 through 18. And in part, that text reads, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. goes on to say that no king is saved by the multitude of an army. And behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. As you read that text, any good student of Scripture realizes that the focus in that text is the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. The Old Testament nation of Israel. That that is the nation that God has chosen for his own inheritance. Now, the, the, the chaplain of the Continental Congress is obviously reading that to apply that to the United States of America. And that's his intention. But it did, did not apply to the United States of America. It didn't when it was written. It didn't when the chaplain wrote it and read it. And it doesn't now. The main focus of that passage is the nation of Israel. Now, can a nation today learn some things from that passage? No doubt. But it's a misuse of the passage, and it was a misunderstanding in the minds of those men, good though they were, noble though they were. It's not meant to be a blanket statement for all nations, and certainly not especially for the United States. God's nation today is spiritual. It's not Israel. It's not the USA. His spiritual nation knows no earthly boundaries. Jesus stood before Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from here. Elsewhere he would say, the kingdom of God is within you. And friends, that's much different from what we're hearing from a lot of evangelicals today and certainly from a lot of people who don't understand God at all, the humanists and elitists in our country. 
The Apostle Peter writes so beautifully in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. By the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Who's he talking to? Israel? United States? No, he's talking to Christians. You are a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The church that Christ founded and built is his nation, his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus commended the Apostle Peter for that confession that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The kingdom of heaven. And Peter used those keys, I believe, to open it up for us on the day of Pentecost when he preached repentance and baptism for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2. And people were added to the church and the kingdom of Christ was founded as it had been prophesied so long ago. And so Christians were ushered into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. Paul praises God for that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. He talks about how he's translated us out of the power of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of His love. If you're a Christian today, you're in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's a nation that cannot be destroyed or shaken. Whatever happens to the United States, whatever happens to any nation anybody on earth may be a part of, nothing can shake the kingdom of heaven. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be moved. It is eternal. And if you're a part of that, that's really ultimately, isn't it, all that's important. Yes, we want to make our physical nation better. Yes, we want to make the United States the best it can be. Yes, we want to be a nation that honors God. But the kingdoms of men, as we sing sometimes in the the old hymn, the kingdoms of men will all pass away. But the kingdom of heaven remains forever and ever and ever it shall stand. So the writer in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28 says that we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And so let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The kingdom of heaven is one from which physical death cannot remove us. It's a nation into which God welcomes anyone of any race or nationality. Any and all can flow into it. The prophecy back in the book of Isaiah concerning the establishment of this kingdom is interesting. In Isaiah chapter 2, and Isaiah wrote about 700 years before the birth of Christ, but he saw what was coming. And Isaiah writes a lot about the Messiah's kingdom, if you're familiar with his book. He says in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Let me just say here that if you're familiar with biblical prophecy and the figurative language that's often used in biblical prophecy, you know that a mountain oftentimes will represent a kingdom. And what this, pro- what this prophecy says is that the mountain of the Lord's house is over all of the mountains. <laughs> 
It's over all of them. It's it's established on top of them. It overarches everything. And it is going to include all nations. All nations will flow into it. In verse 3 it says, Many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways. We will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the, the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And of course, that's what happened in Acts 2 when the kingdom was established. It goes on in verse 4 here to say, He shall judge between the nations, rebuke many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is an eternal kingdom, as I said, which overarches and overshadows every earthly kingdom and every earthly relationship. In Daniel chapter 2, a passage that we've already alluded to a couple of times, King Nebuchadnezzar had seen a vision. It troubled him. His wise men and soothsayers, diviners, couldn't tell him what the vision was and certainly couldn't interpret it. But Daniel came. And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he told Nebuchadnezzar about that vision. And he said, you saw an image, a great image. And its head was of gold, its chest and arms of silver, its midsection was of bronze, and the legs were iron, and the feet, iron and toes, mixed with miry clay. And he said to Nebuchadnezzar, these represent kingdoms. The first is Babylon, king, Nebuchadnezzar, you're you're at the top, you're the head of gold. Then it will be the Medes and the Persians, then it will be Greece. And then it will be the Roman Empire. And Daniel tells him in an amazing prophecy, and this prophecy is repeated in different words about three times in Daniel. But Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that in the days of that fourth kingdom, you saw a stone carved out without hands. And it was coming up against that image, and it broke it all into pieces so that it all became dust and it was blown away like the chaff is blown away by the wind. And it grew to be a great mountain that covered all the earth. And that mountain is the kingdom of Christ, established in the days of the Roman kings. An amazing prophecy that that would happen 600 years before it did happen. And I want you to listen to the conclusion that Daniel makes. I just sort of paraphrased all of that to you. But I want you to listen to this verse. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. In the days of these kings, talking about those Roman kings, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, And it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. In this eternal, all-consuming nation, to which Christians belong as citizens, and to which they owe all their allegiance, the point of it all is that God be glorified in every nation on earth by people who are citizens of heaven 
and whatever's going on in this world, and there's always something going on. There's always concern in the rise and fall of nations, wars and rumors of wars, injustice, poverty, racism. When has it never been so? But the kingdom of God Almighty stands. And I hope, if you're a child of God tonight, that you can just get a lot of comfort, serenity, and security in that fact. And that's why I'm talking about all of this. I want us to make our nation better. But you know what? One of these days, somehow, some way, maybe when Jesus comes, it's going to fall apart. And then what will be important to you? And then what citizenship will you cherish? The Christian's allegiance belongs to the kingdom of heaven. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, not because you're a citizen of the United States, but if you're a child of God, that's why. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, I started with this last night, I'll end with it tonight. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's not put our trust in any modern political system, in party politics or in weapons. If we remain faithful to God, we are blessed, regardless of what else is going on in this world, because we are citizens of heaven. And while the world frets over political developments, social unrest that seem to plague us and every nation, let me tell you, I just want to tell you what's going on in my country. I want to tell you what's going on in my real country, my heavenly country. Everybody's so concerned about the politics and the international, you know, terrorism and all of this kind of stuff that's going on in man's countries, in, in, in human nations. But I want to tell you what's going on in my country, what I've seen with my eyes in my country in just the last two weeks. I've seen that the lost have obeyed the gospel by the dozens and were added to the body of Christ. I've seen hungry Christians who were fed through the love and generosity of their brethren in places like Zimbabwe. I've seen Christians and heard of Christians all around the globe who've met on the Lord's Day to rejoice together in worshiping their Lord and honoring their everlasting Redeemer. I've known of fervent prayers that were prayed for the sick and for the suffering for those that were facing spiritual challenges. And I know that God heard these prayers, and I know that people were healed, and prayers were answered, and the downtrodden were lifted up. I know that there's been rejoicing as God has blessed young married couples with newborn babies, and there's been sorrow and yet greater rejoicing as faithful Christians have come to the end of this life only to move on to realms above 
where they will receive a crown of righteousness. I tell you, our citizenship is in heaven. And what's going on in my country tonight is great. And I have nothing to fear. And a lot to rejoice in. Because I'm a citizen of heaven. I stand with the faithful of old who desired a better country. And because of that desire, God was not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared for them a city. Let's exalt God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Thank you for your kind attention tonight. Greg. Well, we've had a, a few questions submitted. I'll do my best to uh, answer them according to Scripture, my understanding of Scripture. And that's all I've got to go by. My opinion doesn't count any more than anybody else's. Um, the question, am I to respect and honor a man who lies on many occasions? And uh, I take it that uh, this refers to a person in high office, a president or whoever it may be, who's told a number of lies. And um, I, I think the answer to that question is obviously yes. Uh, the Bible says, First uh, Peter 2, honor the king. Uh, Romans chapter 13, um, you, you know, again, respect the governing authorities. Uh, honor them. So uh, that's the Bible answer to that. Um, and the question then goes on to ask about re uh, respecting and honoring the office as separate from the man in the office. And I think we, most of us understand that uh, when, when God told us, told the Romans to, and, uh, to honor Nero and to, to honor the king in 1 Peter 2, uh, obviously he's not saying that means we approve of everything this individual does as an individual. Um, we understand that. We, we honor the office. Uh, we respect that. We, we hold him uh, up with words of respect uh, because of that. Uh, it's hard to separate in our minds. I know it is. It is for me. I have the same problem. How do you separate honoring the office from the man who holds it? And yet, it, it, it seems to me that if you read uh, the accounts, for instance, when Paul uh, was brought before wicked kings and proconsuls, that he was always respectful. Um, it seems to me that that's, that's the case throughout, whether he's talking to uh, Felix or Festus or Herod Agrippa or whoever it was. Uh, the indication is even, you know, before Caesar. Um, and, and I think that, that needs to be in our heart as well. I'm not sure that I have all the answers to that question. It's a good question. Uh, you talked about Nebuchadnezzar being a pawn. What about... Ahab and other evil kings. Um, you know, I, I believe that God works his counsel among the nations. God doesn't, didn't tell us in the Old Testament how he used everybody that he used. Um, a lot of times, I will say this, just a general observation, if you read through those Old Testament kings, uh, Ahab, the ex example of a very wicked king, uh, there are a lot of others that we could turn to. The king, so many of the times was emblematic of the nation itself, wasn't it? 
the, the people, uh, you say, well, the, the king was leading the people, but a lot of times the people were leading the king, I think, if you really look at it. And, and, and what happened, what God was doing with those evil kings is, and the people who were in league with them, I, I believe is he was bringing to them to a point where he would be clearly justified in punishing them the way that he did and through them. Um, now, I believe the Bible points that out. Whether there's more than that that could be added, I don't know. Um, and, you know, the question, well, how did God use them in every way? I, I can't answer that. God doesn't tell us always. But I believe that he had counsel that he was executing among men. And um, whether they liked it or not or were willing participants or not, God used them to do what he wanted to get done. And that's the amazing thing about his sovereignty. Let me just go off on this. This is, this is free. Ex hold my time. <laughs> this, is, this is free right here. I talked a lot tonight about the sovereignty of God. I would differ from the Calvinist regarding what sovereignty really means. Our Calvinist friends, and I, I do mean friends, they believe that God is sovereign in that he unchangeably foreordains everything that comes to pass. Every action that you make, he controls. Everything that you do has already been forechosen, if you will, chosen before time. That's, in essence, Calvinist position on the sovereignty of God. God, in his mind, in order to be sovereign, had to make all of our choices for us before we were ever born. All of our choices for us. Now, what I say about that is that that, that, is, a, that is a really puny view of the power and sovereignty of God. The God that the Bible describes and that I believe in is a God who allows every last one of us to choose virtually everything we do in our adult lives. We have free will. And yet, despite giving every last one of us free will, he still works his counsel among the nations. <laughs> now that, that is an all-powerful, sovereign God. And you say, well, I don't understand he, how he could do that. Exactly. You don't understand how he could do that. That's why he's God. That's why he's all-powerful. That's why you're just a human being. See, Calvin thought he had to understand how God could do it. You kidding me? That brings God down to our level. God's not on our level. God's sovereign, and yet we still plainly have choices. And it's that, that sort of you know, contrast, that dichotomy that we've been really grappling with the la these last two nights. We have choices about who to vote for and what to stand for and, and how we operate in this world. And yet the ultimate choice is God's. And both of those things are true, and, and, and we need to understand that. At the end of the day, is there any point to fight for the nation that America was founded on, to fight for the notion, excuse me, that America was founded on Christian principles, such as full-page advertisements placed by Hobby Lobby on July 4th? In my mind, there's not. Um, again, that, that would be just my opinion. Um, uh, from, a, from a truly biblical standpoint, again, I understand where these people are coming from, their concept of Christianity, from that concept, I suppose, you know, but from a, a truly biblical standpoint of what Christianity is all about, uh, I don't see the point of it. Uh, I think we should stand for righteousness, as I talked about a lot last night. We should vote for righteous causes and against unrighteous causes, but uh, I, don't, I don't really see the point of, of that, honestly. 
All right, in, regard, in regards to submitting to government leaders, <clears throat> would there ever be a time for Christians to resist or oppose them, specifically in organized opposition? I think any time, um, as Peter tells us, uh, when the commands of human government contradict the commands of God and his word, Christians must stand uh, for the commands of God and his word and against whatever human government was telling them. We must, as Peter said, obey God rather than men. If human government uh, says you can't preach the gospel, I'm still going to preach the gospel, folks. Human government has said you can't pray like you've been praying. I still pray. I pray publicly. I prayed in schools. I'm not going to, just like Daniel, I'm just going to do what I did before. <laughs> you know, human government may say something else. And the question has to do with specifically organized opposition. You know, I, I've uh, been in marches against abortion. Uh, so that's my personal answer to that. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think we have a right to overthrow government. Uh, you know, don't, don't go with those who are, sub, who are given to change of, of governments like that. But I think we have a right in a democratic republic to stand for what we believe in. It's a constitutional right. And to speak it, uh, that's a constitutional right. And so, but besides that, it, it wouldn't matter if it wasn't. We still have the responsibility to stand for what's right. Now, it's important, you know, how far are you going to go with that? Are, are you going to um, break civil law that's not related to your cause uh, that's a whole nother kettle of fish so to speak um, this this principle of the civil rights movement of well we're going to engage in civil disobedience we're going to disobey a number of the laws of the land in order to bring our cause out you know and those the, the laws they were disobeying some of them didn't have anything to do with their cause and so I, I question that I think that's not right for Christians to do. We, still, we need to be subject to every ordinance of man as long as it does not uh, contradict the law of God. How would we know when to stop praying for God to deliver our nation? Well, I think we should always pray for our nation and for our rulers that we may, as Paul says, live uh, peaceable, quiet, godly lives. Um, I don't know that we should stop that, understanding that when I pray for God to deliver my nation, I don't necessarily mean deliver it like it is right now. I mean, Lord, help us make it better so you can be righteous in delivering it. Um, but I, again, I understand the, the despair, really, from which that question, question comes. I really do. Appreciate the good questions. Appreciate being with you, and I hope the answers have helped somewhat. Um, uh, I want to say thanks to Greg and the church at College View for putting on this uh, these two nights. Uh, it's been wonderful to be with the folks up here in Columbia. Uh, admire uh, this community a lot. I know a lot of Christians here, good folks, and uh, encourage you to stand for what's right in this community. Thank you very much.